Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. A movement, I'm telling you, they're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. This week, I want to share with you an incredible university commencement speech I came across. I've quoted bits of it in the past but I've now obtained permission from the Pennsylvania Gazette to share it in its entirety. They say history repeats itself. I contend that has everything to do with human nature. We'd like to think we're different, more advanced, than people from 80 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. But the truth is, we're not. Our technology has advanced, but we're still people, same as they were. In my opinion, this speech from nearly 80 years ago directly addresses what we're facing right now. This is The Cult of Competency by Henning W. Prentice Jr., delivered at the University of Pennsylvania, February 1943. A couple of things to keep in mind as I read this. One, this was 1943. For the United States, this was smack in the middle of World War II. Everyone in the United States was involved in the war, in one way or another, and there was no perceptible end in sight. Two, the insights he proposes are timeless. This could have been written yesterday. The speech may actually be more relevant today than it was 78 years ago when he gave it. I wish this had been recorded. Somehow, I think this would have been more powerful with his voice and a real sense of the period conveyed by the recording quality of the time. I'll do my best to do it justice. The Cult of Competency, address delivered by Henning W. Prentice Jr. at the Mid-Year Convocation, University of Pennsylvania, February 1943. I am deeply sensible of the honor accorded me by President Gates, the trustees, and faculty in inviting me to speak at this midwinter commencement. Although I shall do my best, I am sure that no effort of mine could possibly approach in directness, brevity, and clarity the memorable commencement addressed by President McCosh at Princeton on a hot summer's day when he merely admonished the weary graduating class to shave every morning and pray every night. I am grateful not only for the kind reception you have given me, but also for the inspiration the occasion has supplied for crystallizing my thinking on the subject I propose to discuss, the cult of competency. I have long had a deep-seated and abiding interest in young college men and women. To a group of several hundred such graduates in my own company, a score of whom have come from the University of Pennsylvania, I acknowledge a debt of gratitude I can never repay, for it is to their intelligence and zeal, their ability and loyalty, that I owe the expansion of my own opportunity in life. How better can I requite them than by trying to pass on the torch they placed in my hands to the new generation now coming to maturity? Hence, what I have to say is addressed primarily not to the intellectual luminaries in academic regalia who are gathered here about me, but rather to the members of this graduating class who will now assume the task we older men will soon be laying down. In a world of crashing confusion and deepening doubt, wallowing in the welter of war, amid all that confusion and doubt, confusion as to the principles on which this republic was established, doubt as to their validity in the closely knit industrial world in which we live, institutions of higher learning such as this that continue to stress the paramount values of a liberal arts education have a vital mission to perform. And for that additional reason, as a beneficiary of the type of education for which your alma mater has stood throughout its history, I am glad to have the privilege of being with you on this commencement day. 
This great institution of yours was founded by men who believed in God and country. Men who are convinced that the only way they and their children could serve God and country effectively was through enlightened minds and quickened souls. Your first provost was the Reverend William Smith. No one can read his book, A General Idea of the College of Marania, describing the university of his dreams, without being impressed with his far-reaching plans to train men to be thoroughly competent citizens, conscious of their civil and personal responsibilities, and ready to discharge those duties to the full, no matter what sacrifice might be involved. The university heads who have succeeded him have not only adhered to his high ideals of educational leadership, but, like your present distinguished president, have ever kept in mind the sage advice of Seneca, which appears on the title page of Smith's famous book, Nullum Animal Morosius Est, Nullum Majore Este Tractandum Quam Homo. No animal is harder to get along with, none must be treated with greater tact than man. How different are commencements at the University of Pennsylvania today compared with similar occasions a century and a half ago? I hold here a facsimile of the handbill, printed in Latin at the expense of the students, which in accordance with a long-established custom was distributed to the audience that attended the graduating exercises of the class of 1763. It sets forth 90 theses in grammar, rhetoric, logic, physics, metaphysics, ethics, and politics, which the candidates for degrees stood ready to defend in syllogistic argument against anyone who cared to challenge them. The graduating class had been prepared for this public disputation, as it was called, by long and continued practice. The provost himself usually presided over these formal arguments, which were held regularly once a week during the junior and senior years. It's interesting to note some of the thesis in politics and ethics that the members of the class of 1763 were prepared to support against all comers. On the off chance that a few of you might not understand the Latin, I shall quote them in English. The rights of the people are as divine as those of their rulers. Only that civil power is just, which makes for the common benefit. Justice must be maintained even with regard to people of the lowest degree and toward enemies. On the list of theses for the commencement of 1762 are several of even more pointed significance. All men are by nature equal, foreshadowing by 14 years the famous assertion of the Declaration of Independence. All the parts of the supreme government may not be improperly reduced to the legislative, federative, and executive a principle that was demonstrated and defended here at the University of Pennsylvania almost 30 years before it was embodied in the Constitution of the United States. This type of training in political, philosophic, and religious principles was followed by all of our colleges and universities in colonial days. In fact, the holding of public disputations at commencement exercises continued well into the early years of the 19th century. At Harvard and William and Mary, at Yale and Princeton, at Columbia and here in Pennsylvania, the men who established the American Revolution drilled themselves in the history of humanity's previous attempts at self-government, analyzed the record of successes and failures, deduced therefrom the immutable principles essential for the permanent enjoyment of freedom, built on those foundations a new nation conceived in liberty, and continued throughout their lives as articulate in its support in times of peace as they had been dauntless defenders in time of war. Thus the freedom we have enjoyed in America is not the fruit of fortuitous accident, of great natural resources, or of mere isolation from the tangled skein of European politics. It is the direct result of purposeful thinking and hard work. It is the child of the cult of competency, intellectual competency, physical competency, moral competency, which Benjamin Franklin, the father of this university, and the other men who founded this nation, so eminently typified. As Tocqueville observed, the assembly which accepted the task of composing the Constitution was small. But George Washington was its president, and it contained the choicest talents of the noblest hearts 
which had ever appeared in the New World. The Greeks said, Know yourself. The Romans, Be yourself. The Christians, Give yourself. The cult of competency, as our fathers knew and practiced it, fused these three swords of the Spirit into the great instrumentality that set them free. To remain free, we, their descendants, must pay the same price they paid. For freedom, as many wise men have pointed out, is not a gift from heaven. It must be won and rewon by every generation for itself. It is not ours for the asking, as so many complacent Americans seem to think. It is ours only for the taking, through competent personal effort in support of the eternal principles on which it rests. The way to freedom has always been a rough and arduous road. It is not for weaklings. It has never remained long under the feet of those who seek first, last, and always a full stomach, at the price of a questing mind and an unfettered soul. Only a competent people can build the temple of self-government, and only a competent people can keep it standing. The floods of economic depression, the frosts of class cleavage, the ice of apathy, and the winds of demagoguery are potent forces of social erosion which are never at rest. Only through constant renewal of knowledge, faith, and practice of the principles of republican self-government by a competent citizenry can the edifice of liberty be kept intact. As Montesquieu reminded us 200 years ago, Popular self-government is the most difficult of all forms of government to maintain, but it yields strong men who are willing to pay the cost, the priceless blessings of liberty. To preserve itself, a representative democracy should therefore guard and encourage individual competency with every means at its command, for only intellectually competent men can fully discharge the responsibilities of citizenship, weigh new proposals of government against the lessons of history, and vote intelligently. Only physically competent men can create the wealth required to produce a rising standard of living, foster education, and finance necessary government activities. Only morally competent men will support religion, assist the incompetent, succor the unfortunate, and exercise the self-restraint necessary to preserve our free institutions. Our fathers had none of the current mystical faith in the power of government, composed of men no better, no worse on the average, than the rest of us, to solve all their problems. But they did have the virtues par excellence of free men, courage, and self-reliance. So the representative democracy they devised, based on the cult of competency, had as its cornerstones the right of the people to choose their own rulers, the right of all men to free speech, free assemblage, and free conscience, the right of all men to work freely at lawful vocations of their own choosing. If through intellectual, physical, or moral incompetency we permit any one of these three fundamental rights to be undermined, the ultimate fall of the American Republic is as inevitable as the failure of the many other attempts at popular self-government which have had their little day and gone down into the night of history. To be intellectually competent, a man obviously must have a storehouse of facts, the ability to think straight, mental humility, and a certain sense of the fitness of things that we in business call good judgment. To the three R's of the primary grades, reading, writing, and arithmetic, he must add the R's of higher education, receptivity, reflexiveness, resourcefulness, and responsibility. If I were asked to pick out the one paramount blessing of a college education, I think I should place mental humility above all others. Hence, it has always seemed to me that every student should pursue at least one subject far enough to realize how little he can ever hope to know about it when he compared his own proficiency with that of the real masterminds in that particular field. Like all of you, I had studied arithmetic, algebra, plane geometry, and trigonometry in high school. When I went to college, I concluded that I might eventually decide to be an engineer. Hence, I elected all the courses in mathematics required for the first two years of engineering, including spherical trigonometry, analytical geometry, higher algebra, differential, and integral calculus. 
Then, just as I had begun to think that I was really getting somewhere as a mathematician, I discovered that I had not even touched the field of applied mathematics, thermodynamics, hydromechanics, rigid dynamics, the theory of probabilities, the kinetical theory of gases, let alone celestial mechanics. But compared with the mathematical knowledge of a Descartes or Laplace, my acquaintance with the subject was that of an infant scarcely able to lisp. I could not solve an equation of integral calculus today if my life depended on it, but I tell you nothing has ever happened to me that did more to mold my mental outlook than that experience. So whatever else you may have done during your university course, I hope that you have followed at least one subject beyond its elementary stages, to a point where there has come upon you with the burst of an exploding shell, the overwhelming sense of your own mental limitations. Because that is the attitude that produces mental humility. The spirit of constant inquiry. As Cowper said, knowledge is proud that it knows so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. When it comes to public affairs, how many of us who are college and university graduates are intellectually competent? Speaking from my own experience, I know that although I received a Bachelor of Arts degree from a state university, I was never taught anything specifically about the foundations of American freedom, nor was it ever made clear to me that our various liberties, political, intellectual, economic, and spiritual, stand or fall together. What little I have learned on these subjects has been almost entirely the product of reading and study over the past decade. The mental stimulation, the spiritual uplift, and the patriotic pride in my country and its institutions, which this effort has yielded me, have been worth far more than it has cost. The fact of the matter is that we Americans have been so engrossed after the Civil War in economic affairs that we have simply not been interested in government. Hence, the study of the liberal arts, history, political philosophy, and religion has gone largely into the discard. Thus, quite unwittingly, we have cut ourselves off from the sources from which American liberty stems. Most of us, in fact, no longer understand the creative spirit that brought into being the free society in which we live. So we are prone to accept the melons food of political pabulum served to us in pre-digested form by commentators, columnists, and politicians, without ever doing any very serious thinking on the public questions on our own account. For example, what does the phrase American democracy mean to you? The word democracy does not appear anywhere, you know, in either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Yet it is on everybody's tongue today. How do you define it? Is it, as so many people seem to think, merely the toleration of any vagrant idea about government that may enjoy the support of a current majority? Again, let me ask, what is your considered judgment of the statement of Vice President Wallace last November when he said, and implied that he thought so himself, some in the United States believe that we have overemphasized what might be called political or Bill of Rights democracy. If you disagree, are you intellectually competent to refute his assertion? Here is still another case. Inferring that the system of checks and balances of the American Republic is outmoded, Attorney General Biddle claimed in a recent speech about democracy that the misuse of power is neither more likely nor more necessarily harmful in the case of government than it is in the case of other social organisms where power has been or may be lodged. What do you think of that? The writers of the Federalist Papers would not agree, I am sure. Certainly no social organism but government has jails to put people into when it does misuse its power. Incidentally, if you have not read the Federalist Papers, by all means do so. Those 87 newspaper articles by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, written for popular consumption in 1789, are still the best explanation of the philosophy underlying the American Republic that I have found anywhere. The men who set up this nation were intellectually competent to defend the principles on which it was founded. If we are to preserve it, we must prove worthy of our heritage by emulating their example. The collectivists among us are never idle. They constantly chip away at the foundations of our free institutions. 
So every intellectually competent citizen should be equally alert, analyze every new government proposal in the light of history, and decide for himself whether or not it fits into the fabric of our system. Otherwise, we may find ourselves eventually with only the empty shell of the republic that our gallant soldiers and sailors are now fighting to preserve on land and sea, and in the air, and in the waters under the sea. When I speak of physical competency, I am not thinking of merely bodily strength, but rather of the ability of a man to take care of himself and those dependent on him without subsidies from government or any other source. That characteristic, the spirit of self-reliance, is an essential ingredient of popular self-government. The preservation of a representative democracy hinges directly on the willingness of the people to decide public questions on the basis of the general national welfare, not on narrow considerations of individual or group selfishness. If men are not themselves economically competent, but are the wards of the state, how can they avoid dealing with public questions on the basis of self-interest? Furthermore, without a financially competent citizenry, how can we hope to maintain our two-party political system? The party in power is in position to use public funds for political propaganda. Financial support for the opposition can only come from private citizens, and without intelligent opposition, the democratic process is self-defeating. Obviously, also, private business cannot exist without constant accretions of new capital. Unless the financially competent are in positions to furnish it, the state must supply it. And when government becomes the primary source of capital funds, national socialism automatically displaces representative democracy. The church and our private educational and philanthropic institutions would be lost without the support that competent individual citizens furnish them. Economic competency thus plays a very vital part in a republic of free men. In fact, James Madison said, The economic foundations of the American political system is the protection of the differing and unequal capacity of men to acquire and use property. Yet in recent years, in the name of social reform, many serious obstacles have been placed by government in the path of the competent citizen. Under the added impact of war, these handicaps have now reached such proportions that unless young people like yourselves see to it that they are ameliorated as soon as peace comes, the American Republic will be in serious jeopardy. When I was growing up as the son of a school principal, any man who could put aside, say, $20,000 in savings and life insurance for his family was considered to have accumulated a tiny fortune. Invested at 6%, it yielded an annual income of $1,200, which purchased probably as much as $2,000 will buy today. Assume that starting from scratch, a young man can save $20,000 today, a real task in the face of mounting taxes. Invested at 3%, about the maximum safe rate, this sum would yield $600 a year. Taxes would take a bit out of that, but after the war, with the creeping inflation now in progress, even $600 will probably not have the purchasing power of more than half that sum. One of the finest instincts of a normal man is his desire to provide for the financial future of himself and his family. Hence, the situation I have just described, which strikes at the root of personal incentive, is rightly a matter of deep concern to every thoughtful American. The preservation of our freedom and national well-being, including economic security for the unfortunate, depends directly on the continuation of reasonable financial opportunity and reward for the competent. Consider the plight of the one-third of our population who allegedly are ill-nourished, ill-housed, and ill-clad. In the last analysis, who but the competent among us can help that situation? Of course, government can tax away the savings of the competent of this and past generations and distribute them. But eventually, when this accumulated fat is gone, where is the new productive wealth to come from in a free society, if not from the ingenuity, initiative, and enterprise of the competent? It is therefore high time, it seems to me, for believers in American liberty to raise their voices in behalf of the two-thirds of our citizens who have proven competent to take care of themselves— and thus show some concern for the original forgotten man 
a William Graham Sumner, a quiet citizen who paddled his own canoe day in and day out, marries and raises a family, bases taxes, supports his church, contributes to the community chest, fights for his country when need arises, asks nobody to protect him from cradle to the grave, and thereby does his quiet bit to maintain the American Republic for his children and his children's children. If this be social treason, make the most of it. As Somerset Maugham said, if a nation values anything more than freedom, it will lose its freedom. And the irony of it is that if it is comfort or money that it values more, it will lose that too. Paradoxically enough, the release of initiative and enterprise made possible by popular self-government ultimately generates disintegrating forces from within. Again and again, after freedom has brought opportunity and some degree of plenty, the competent become selfish, luxury-loving, and complacent. The incompetent and the unfortunate grow envious and covetous. And all three groups turn aside from the hard road of freedom to worship the golden calf of economic security. The historical cycle seems to be, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back to bondage once more. At the stage between apathy and dependency, men always turn in fear to economic and political panaceas. New conditions, it is claimed, require new remedies. Under such circumstances, the competent citizen is certainly not a fool if he insists upon using the compass of history when forced to sail uncharted seas. Usually so-called new remedies are not new at all. Compulsory planned economy, for example, was tried by the Chinese some three millenniums ago, and by the Romans in the early centuries of the Christian era. It was applied in Germany, Italy, and Russia long before the present war broke out, yet it is being seriously advocated today as a solution of our economic problems in the United States. Its proponents confidently assert that the government can successfully plan and control all major business activity in the nation, and still not interfere with our political freedom and our hard-won civil and religious liberties. The lessons of history all point in exactly the reverse direction. Under compulsory national economic planning in Germany before the war, was there freedom of the press? Ask any newspaper man. Was there freedom of suffrage in Italy? Ask any hardy soul who underwent the castor oil treatment at the hands of the fanatical fascists. Did the farmer preserve his freedom in Russia? Ask the kulaks. What happened to labor unions under planned economy? Ask the former labor leaders of any Axis nation. Is academic freedom permitted? Ask the intellectuals in exile. How about freedom of worship? Ask the clergy of Germany and Russia. Well then, can we not apply compulsory planning to a part of our economy and leave the rest to private business? Stalin says no, and so does Douglas Miller in his famous book about Hitler. That is the record. Power over a man's support is power over his will, the Federalist Papers sagely observed in 1789. Yet I venture to predict that if we ever do lose our freedom in America, it will be due to public ignorance and the perils involved in outright government planning and control of our economic life. All of which, again, demonstrates that freedom can only be had by competent men who understand the basic principles of self-government and who recognize that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. It has long been recognized that education which does not mold the soul of man while it is fashioning his mind is lethal poison for the individual and social dynamite for the body politic. In the original charter of the academic and charitable school in the province of Pennsylvania, from which this university sprang, the hope is expressed that it may prove a nursery of wisdom and virtue. And your first provost said that there is yet one science necessary to complete all the rest, the science of Christianity and the great mystery of godliness. Popular self-government as we know it in America has its origins in the religious concepts of the sacredness of the individual soul, 
and the existence of certain inalienable natural rights conferred upon man by Almighty God. Certainly, therefore, one need not argue the essentiality of moral competency to our continued existence as a nation of free men. The voluntary assumption of social stewardship is, in very literal sense, the keystone of liberty, and it requires a high degree of moral competency to fit men for such responsibility. As Justice Brandis said, democracy is a serious undertaking which substitutes self-restraint for external restraint. In other words, if men do not conduct themselves of their own volition, with due regard for the rights of others, they invite public coercion. We saw that process at work in the years before the war, in the well-nigh endless multiplication of government controls designed allegedly to bring about social justice. Many of these measures were justified, but few would have been enacted if we had had the moral competency to conduct ourselves in accordance with the basic tenets of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Golden Rule. The history of freedom, we must never forget, is the history of limitations of government power, not its extension. Henry Bergson, addressing the French Academy in 1914, said, Science equipped man in less than 50 years with more tools than he had made during the thousands of years he had lived upon Earth. Each new machine being for man a new organ, an artificial organ, his body became suddenly and prodigiously increased in size, without his soul being at the same time able to dilate to the dimension of his new body. That was 30 years ago, and we still have the same problem confronting us. It cannot be solved by the spawning of more laws and regulations, if we are to keep our freedom. Its only solution lies in the development of adequate moral competency, a task in which there can be no evasion of individual responsibility on the part of any citizen who truly loves his country. In his last published article, The Road Away from Revolution, written practically on his deathbed, Woodrow Wilson said, The sum of the whole matter is this, that our civilization cannot survive materially unless it be redeemed spiritually. With all the sorrow and disruption that war is bringing into our lives, there is a certain grim privilege in living and participating in a great crisis in human history. According to the French philosopher, when God erases, he is prepared to write. Our first task, of course, is to win a complete military victory, and we shall do so, never fear, thanks to the superb bravery and sacrifice of our armed forces and the production miracles now being wrought by American industry. When peace comes, we shall possess more manufacturing facilities, more new materials, more skilled labor, a greater pent-up demand for goods, a larger reservoir of spending power than we have ever had in our history. With such resources to work with, it will be the responsibility of the rising generation, such as you who graduate today, to take up the task of building the America of our dreams, an America in which the physical standards of living will be raised to new levels, an America in which religion, education, culture, and recreation will be still more widely diffused. An America in which the cult of competency will not only ensure the maintenance of freedom within our own borders, but will work hand-in-hand hand with all peoples of goodwill to bring to pass that halcyon day, when nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. We can gather new courage for the latter task if we always remember this. Man has been making and using weapons for a million years. Conscience dawned upon him only 5,000 years, 160 generations ago. The cult of competency was forged in the crucible of persecution and tyranny. We have taken it for granted. We have never seen it put to the test it is undergoing today. Now, in the midst of world catastrophe, we are coming to realize anew that there is something in life greater than knowledge and bigger than security. Something which, with all our organized learning, we have not fully captured in books. That something, which in the past has caused men to sacrifice all to attain some part of it. Some call it liberty, some freedom. Maybe its best designation is that of the dignity of the individual in the sight of God and man. Some define it in terms of faith, 
and others as human brotherhood. But of one thing I am certain, it is the priceless ingredient of life. Whatever it is, it is of both the heart and mind. Not a complex quality to baffle science, but a simple thing to assuage men's souls. It is the quality of being a man. With that concept, Aristotle spurred Athenian youth. And it was that, no doubt, which illuminated Socrates' mind as he talked the great simplicities to his students under a fig tree in far distant days in ancient Greece. Its quest has filled the ages ever since. Its attainment, in a fuller sense, is the only thing that will make tomorrow worth living. Its achievement is a ringing challenge to you young men and women of the class of 1943, the latest novitiates of the cult of competency. At a time when half the political arena is demanding to be taken care of, while we face the real possibility of civil war and at the same time face the real possibility of global war, when political edicts are forcibly and seemingly intentionally stripping from people their ability to provide, when family get-togethers are broken up by police and the wealthiest people in the world are getting together to tell us that we'll soon own nothing and we'll be happy under their rule, this message from Henning Prentice has never been more relevant. With the war against the free market in full effect and the unprecedented acceleration of money printed by the Fed leading to the inevitability of hyperinflation, I think it is time to start looking at providing for ourselves at a fundamental level. A third of our national money supply has been printed in the last year, and Congress has embraced modern monetary theory wholeheartedly. They really believe they can keep printing money indefinitely and they'll be able to control the effects. Zimbabwe was formerly known as the breadbasket of Africa, When the effects of socialism caught up with them, they suffered from staggering hyperinflation. In 2008, inflation in the former breadbasket of Africa broke 100,000%. 100,000%. Historically, every nation, at least that I'm familiar with, that has tried to print its way out of a financial problem has suffered crippling hyperinflation. Congress has lost control and is printing and spending at an unprecedented rate with no end in sight. If, suddenly, your life savings could buy a pack of gum, could you provide for your family? Could you feed them? Could you make safe drinking water from an unsafe source? Do you know how to grow food in a garden? Let me tell you, there's a learning curve. Do you know how to make bread? Can you keep your family warm in the winter? Can you teach your children? Do you possess the moral courage necessary to do what's right when it conflicts with what seems expedient? If we're to avoid the coming disaster, we need a critical mass of people who have developed physical, intellectual, economic, and moral competency. If we're unable to avoid it, we'll need that same critical mass to survive it. Giving up is not an option. All right, I'm going to leave it there. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Parler at RealIntoTheFray. Take a look at your life and your family and figure out where you need to shore up the edges. It's always better to prepare while the clouds are out on the horizon. I barely touched on hyperinflation. The Prentice speech was already pretty lengthy. I'll have to dedicate an episode to that topic soon. Till next week, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. (laughs) 